was I, as I stood up looking out from the altar and looking in the saborias, I saw the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion going towards a group of the men. And I was like, there's no possible way that she's going to cover that entire area with, as you guys came in, it was a great sight to see this morning. So, and I was actually fully awake to see you too, um, which was even better. I have the auspicious um, start of the day to talk to you about uh, what it, the what and the why of Lent and, and where we have. Now I'm going to take a, a little different approach. Um, Got to give you a little history because I'm kind of one of those guys that needs context. Um, and why we do what we do when we do it, and then also give you a perspective of, uh, and tailor it more for men. What does Lent mean uh, for us, uh, especially historically, for what it means uh, to be a a man in Christ? Um, And let's start with some of the history there. Uh, You know, Someone says, a lot of people will say, well, how long have we had this Lent? Has it always been 40 days? You know, I see in the Eastern Church, it's actually eight weeks in our, in our particular rite. It's six weeks. When I say rite in church, um, we're one Holy Roman Catholic Church, but we have 23 ways of, of celebrating the sacraments. Uh, uh, why are we always at the forefront? Because we've got the Bishop of Rome. <laughs> and when you've got that seat, let's just be honest. So... Um, uh, that Bishop of Rome, uh, the Holy Father, the Pope, is, is, as we call him, which, uh, fun fact, for the first nine centuries in the Western Church, we called all of our bishops popes, actually. It was reserved in about the ninth century just for the Bishop of Rome. Uh, and um, that's always uh, one of those little fun trivia pieces that are useless, except at Catholic uh, parties. Um, um, but so uh, we know, uh, we are already knew that there was a type of fasting in preparation for Easter uh, from the earliest church document that we have called the Didache, um, which means the teachings. And the, the longer title is the teachings of the Holy Twelve Apostles. And it kind of gave us the first view of what Christianity looked like in that early church and talked about these periods of fasting preparing uh, for Lent. Uh, we know from St. Irenaeus, who died about 203 when he was writing to Pope St. Victor, uh, that, uh, that there were disparities within the East and the West and how Lent was uh, practiced. In fact, he went on to say uh, that, quote, the dispute is not only about the day, but also about the actual character of the fast. Some think that we ought to fast for one day, some for two, others still more. Some making their, their day last 40 hours on end. Such variation in the observance did not originate in our own day, but very much earlier in the time of our forefathers. So when we read in the lives of the saints, we hear forefathers. We're also always supposed to hear apostles at that time, that apostolic uh, tradition that's been handed on to us. Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of history that we're going to skip over here on how we got to uh, those uh, 40 days and those 24, 40-hour days uh, but uh, what's important to hear in this is that um, the Didache, which is, which is in that first century, here we are coming in, uh, we're in that second and, and overflowing for his death into the third century, and there is always already knowledge that there is some type of Lenten fast and period that's observed, though it's not kind of homogenous uh, throughout Christendom at that point. Um, when does it actually become very regularized? Well, there was a very important event uh, that happened in uh, 313, and that was the Edict of Milan. And so that Christianity suddenly becomes uh, legal throughout uh, the kingdom, and 
uh, or the empire. And uh, we'll start to see everything starting to form because, you know, it's easier to talk about things when everybody's out in the light and not in fear for their lives um, underground in the catacombs. Um, uh, the Council of Nicaea in 325 started in its disciplinary um, canons, and it, um, it talked about two um, synods that would, uh, that would happen, which has nothing to do with Lent, except what it says. It says, one before the 40 days of Lent. So right there, that Council of Nicaea already recognized that there was a 40 days uh, of Lent that were there. St. Athanasius, um, eh, who was 4th century... Um, third century and the fourth century died in 373. Um, he talked to his congregation about making the 40 day fast uh, prior to really intense fasting of Holy Week. So notice that that there's 40 days and then there's the Holy Week fast uh, for that. Um, we hear Cyril of Jerusalem, who's very important to us in the West. Uh, he died in 386 in his catechetical uh, lectures. And he developed 18 pre-baptismal instructions given to the catechumens during Lent. St. Cyril of Jerusalem is very important to us because he's the one that constructed the ancient RCIA program, which the Second Vatican Council picked up again and reinstated uh, the, uh, the RCIA, that catechetical uh, program. Um, there was... There was one that was really well formed from uh, the 3rd to the 8th century, and then it started waning and then disappeared around the 11th or 12th century. Anybody want to take a guess why? We were baptizing the kids as infants, so you weren't seeing the adults come in, so no need um, at that time. Uh, but it's true, the, the majority of the world was Catholic uh, at that point, or the known world. Um, Cyril of Alexandria also talks uh, about uh, Lent, and he emphasized that 40 days of fasting. But would anybody like to take a guess of which saint wrote, is the most prolific uh, author on Lent? Wrote the most? Jerome. Not Jerome. Ambrose. Not Ambrose. No? No? Not even Aquinas. You should think of your namesake here at the parish. Pope St. Leo the Great. Turns out, one of his favorite seasons. Um, he, has, he has like... When you're going through, um, if you have the four-volume office and the Good Fathers, even this week, Pope St. Leo the Great, Pope St. Leo the Great, Pope St. Leo the Great. The dude loved Lent, okay? But he's one of the most prolific uh, uh, writers on Lent uh, for us and gives us a lot of insight. Uh, he said something interesting. He said uh, to his faithful that they must fulfill their fasts, uh, the apostolic in, uh, institution of the 40 days. He made sure that he connected it back with apostolic times, that this isn't something random that we've been going through. Um, uh, why, did, uh, why did we have Lent? Why did we start it? Well, it first started for public sinners. Um, it started for uh, public sinners, and uh, it began on Ash Wednesday, and then ended, uh, ended um, at, at the, the Mass of Our Lord's Supper, Monday, Thursday, uh, for those first several centuries of the church. Uh, for it. In fact, um, as, as we've heard in our news uh, very lately when we're talking about quarantines, the term quarantine is a very Catholic term, and this is what it stood for. Um, in the early church, when you were a public sinner, you would come in and in front of the entire church on Ash Wednesday, they would mark you with ashes, and then the bishop would throw you out of the church. But you just weren't thrown out of the church. You were also thrown out of your home. 
You couldn't go back home for those 40 days. So you were in quarantine. The very beginning of that word, that 40 that's there. You were thrown out of your family home and your spiritual home for 40 days. Some might like it, others not so much. So uh, don't smile if you're like, hey, that's not a bad idea. So that would be bad. Okay. Um, but uh, but was, what was always important and, and you know, we all love movies and shows, but sometimes we allow Hollywood to educate us uh, for it. And so we think about those great lifelong penances, which were very true. There were many people that, uh, that went through lifelong penances, but in the early church, not so much. All right. We get to this, uh, we get to this tradition uh, a little past the fifth or sixth century. And it was a very, it was a, a, a specific set of time to do those public penances. All right. Then it kind of, got more and more so if you've ever seen the mission so those lifelong public penances doing the impossible things and that reconciliation right before you died but in the early church and then by the 13th century it was very important that it was a very specific time a short duration of time and and uh, the early church and even uh, what we call the dark ages that those middle ages um, unlike today penance was thought as therapeutic, not punitive. For many of us, we look at penance as, as a punitive thing. We've sinned, therefore must, we must pay the price. But it's very much part of our theology that we're never going to be able to pay the price. <laughs> we'll, never, we'll never be able to fill that void. Only Christ and his, uh, his redemption. In fact, um, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those uh, areas in... in uh, Theology that, that is kind of, uh, well, it's not funny, but sometimes we chuckle about it. Um, when, when we talk and we teach on the, the Ten Commandments, we say, why, um, why is it important to follow the Ten Commandments? And everybody says, well, um, to get into heaven. But that's not true. That's not true. In Catholic theology, the day that you were baptized, you already got heaven. The Ten Commandments are meant to keep you there. Not to get you there, because it's only by the cross of Christ that we can get there. Now, there's a cooperation in grace. There is, there is a recognition of our, our wounded humanity and the concupiscence of sin. Um, but, uh, but he's providing that grace. And, and our penance and our fasts are there to cooperate and make room for him um, in our lives. Um, so uh, back to that kind of throwing out of the church um, it was it was actually set up uh, very much so so that um, uh, if you've seen those old Gothic churches when you come in who's holding the holy water fonts? I'm sorry. The cherubim. The cherubim. The cherubim. And so uh, the way uh, when you were actually thrown out uh, of the church during that period of Lent, they actually read right there from Genesis three of Adam and Eve being thrown out. And so the bishop the bishop would literally point to the door where you would have to pass the cherubim, that you're being thrown out of the Garden of Eden, only to be let back in uh, during the, uh, the triduum, when the doors to paradise will be open um, over again. Um, so, uh, um, how many of you here are Irish? Everybody should hug an Irishman by the end of this talk. <laughs> Fuck. Father Wystone is claiming Irish regardless. So, <laughs> everybody's Irish on March 17th. So uh, we got to love the Irish because uh, when, when you think of Lent, it's not only penance and fasting, but what do you also think of? 
What do you do, especially during Lent? You give something. You go to confession. Okay, you go to confession. Now, remember, in the early church, it was public confession. Never an awkward moment. (laughs) Standing up there in front of the community, confessing your sins, and I committed this sin with. Let's not look up, okay, uh, for that. But, um, but uh, private confessions, um, um, we talk about the Irish. I'll give you a little more history because I just kind of like the history. Um, so uh, St. John Cashin, who is of Romanian descent, he was from the West. He went some time to spend down in Egypt. And while he was down there in Egypt, um, uh, another saint, less known in the Western Church, more in the Eastern Church, St. Pacomius, had started putting together these hermitages all together in communities and he started practicing and encouraging uh, this private, uh, this private confession. John Cashin uh, saw it, wrote it down, and um, and his compilations of writings will later become uh, known as the Institutes, which are very, very important uh, to us in the Western Church. Um, and then Cashin, he ended up in what's now modern-day France, uh, was invited to start a community there, and then the Irish came to visit, and. Uh, uh, Cashin was encouraging these private penances um, and even this, uh, this private uh, direction on how to get out of your sins. We know that today is spiritual direction. And the Irish took all of his writings back um, uh, to what's now Ireland, um, implemented there. And then when their missionaries went out into Europe, they took that with them. Um, and so, so the Western Church quickly, uh, quickly uh, enjoyed what we now call private confessions. Anybody want to go back to public ones? Yeah, no, I don't think so. So um, uh, it's, 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 it's a really important uh, piece of our history there. Um, and you might say, well, what does that have to do uh, with Lent? Well, because um, it was that starting that fifth century when St. John Cashin and Pacomius had, had thought through this together, it was right after that time that these lifelong penances started happening. That, you know, you got to keep uh, doing this penance forever uh, and forever, and so um, by the eighth century, the eighth century, the Irish as they were going out and, and promoting this, um, they had had put together uh, these penitential books, and you know this then equals this. What what happened with those penitential books is they started to become very you know Irish very realistic in in, in many in many fashions, um, except possibly their love life. Um, but uh, the, uh, oh, see, you didn't even give a good laugh for that one. <laughs> Dang. Um, but, but brought it together, and, and then uh, through that instant, uh, by the 8th century, I had those penitential books. Um, and then uh, what started happening is that by the 13th century, it had been brought back so, so that the local synods and councils required you to go to confession at least once a year, at least once a year, because everybody was avoiding the confession so they could do the penance and just get that absolution good to go right before you check out. You know, we talk about when we see, when we see um, uh, Catholics hatched, matched, and dispatched, you know, the moment you're baptized, the moment that you're married, and well, when you're being dispatched out the door uh, there. Um, uh, well, that's a delayed reaction there, but... <laughs> The good fathers in the back, in the front, they're like nodding, yeah. Everybody else is, hatch match, what does that mean? So, you should take another sip of your coffee, gentlemen. So, it's, I'm here all morning. Um, 
so uh, so wh- uh, what's also important uh, th- that I want to bring up uh, is this. Remember how I said that that Lent started off with the, pu- the public centers? Okay, Lent was first reserved to the catechumens and public centers that were there. That had caused scandal. But in the 300s, the 300s, the Catholics, Christendom, looked and said, I don't know if you've been keeping up on current events, but we're not much better than they are. And so the church willingly submitted themselves, the lay faithful submitted themselves to Lent per se. Said, this is a great practice. We need to do this. We need to enter into that same spirit because we recognize who we are, what we do. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, the fasting throughout the centuries, it's changed um, a, a great deal um, over it. Uh, you know, that, that exercise uh, for it has been um, a little crazy at times. Um, so, so, you know, when we talk about uh, how long the fasting, people fasted for 40 days, obviously. Um, but, uh, but in the Eastern Church, it was only Monday through Friday, not Saturday or Sunday. In fact, at the Council of Nicene as canons, it, it forbade any type of fasting on, on Sundays um, in any form. And that was to the 8th century. And then from the 8th century, it moved on. So but that by the time you get to St. Thomas Aquinas, um, he's, saying, he's saying that while liturgically we, uh, we pull back, um, uh, uh, that we pull back in our celebration, you may not stop the fast. You must complete the fast through Sundays there. And then, and then so uh, we go through St. Thomas, um, and then what starts happening there is all these indults start happening. They say, well, you know, if you do a pious work, you can have dairy for it, okay? So um, if you do A, B, and C, you know you can have fish too. And then Rome looked at it and said, that's so stupid. So if we can give an indult for this, why are we doing it? Why are we making so many exceptions? Um, and so, uh, so uh, we end up, uh, today, where we have uh, what St. Thomas uh, uh, would talk about uh, were called the Black Days of Fasting, which are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. And so, um, uh, no, uh, obviously, it's, um, I'll talk about what we have now, um, that's, uh, that we have um, that one full meal and the two, two uh, snacks uh, for that time. Um, losing the words. I'm looking for the word collates. Well, what was the word that that Paul VI used for for those two smaller, the collations? So, um, so when Paul VI um, after the council talked about how we were to fast, okay, um, he said you could have on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday one full meal, and then two collations. Um, where we get the word collations? Remember how I talked about John Cashin? In the fifth century, okay. Well, especially during uh, the Middle Ages, uh, while they were eating that small snack, uh, they read from uh, the uh, the uh, uh, collection of John Cashin's uh, writings. So the collations is a direct result of what used to be read during those two smaller snacks uh, for it. Um, a, a little, a little, a couple other fun facts. Um, the general rule that that we find out. Uh, especially from the early church into the Middle Ages, even all the way through uh, Trent and coming up into the 18th century, was that you could only have one meal a day. And you may only have it in the evening 
or at 3 p.m. Um, at 3 p.m. Um, and so um, in, in the old Liturgy of the Hours, we called uh, that ninth hour the knowns, okay? Um, but uh, in the monasteries, all the monks were working so hard that they found a way that you could push those, those prayers, give it a little, and bring it over to noon, to 12 p.m., which is actually where you get the word noon, uh, because uh, they would push those three o'clock prayers up to 12 o'clock, and they would, they would yell out the noons. Um, and so 12 noon is because of the prayers that you would pray at noon, and you were allowed to have that meal at that time uh, for it um, all the way through. The monks loved that little piece uh, for it. Okay. Um, uh, why, uh, why, do we, uh, why do we do this? Uh, why is it so important? And this is how I'm going to bring this all together for you. Um, there's a lot of practices we can talk about the we must do this, we must do that. But I want to share with you what I shared with the teenagers last week uh, for it. And this is it's not a popular sentiment, but it's nonetheless true. The fact is, I think something that we've lost in our, in our modern, our, our, you know, kind of modernity is that we forgot that we're in the middle of a raging war. St. Paul, when he wrote Master of Metaphor, um, had two main metaphors that he worked with throughout his letters. It was either the athlete or the good soldier in Christ. And it was a soldier that he mentioned the majority of the time. And we forget that St. Paul writes that in, in uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, that each one of us, each day, that our uh, fight, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of this world. That each day that, um, that the object of the, of the enemy's anger is literally us. That he cannot ha- uh, hurt the blessed Trinity, God the Father. And so what does he hurt most? Well, he goes after what he cares about the most, us. All of you at Mass have heard me uh, repeat over and over First John 3, 1, that says, See what love the Father has lavished upon us, that he has called us sons and daughters of God, and so we are. Because right there, right there, we hear that we're the object of God the Father's love, which also makes us the object of the enemy's hatred against us. And so every day, every day, uh, not just Lent, but, but even outside of it, that there's a, a battle, a spiritual battle going for our souls. And that's, that this isn't one where you could be like Bull Run, where you sat on the hill, served a little lunch, and watched the battle going on. Okay? In the great scheme of things for the Christian life, you're either a soldier uh, in the war, okay? Or, um, actually, there's, there's three choices. You're either a soldier in the war. Pope St. Gregory said, just as there is an, an army and a body of Christ, there's also an army and a body of Satan. You could be serving uh, the enemy directly, or... If you think you're sitting on the edges of um, Bull Run, uh, what all the saints tell us and what the church teaches is that we become POWs, that we've been tagged prisoners of war, that there is no such thing as injured reserve. It's, it's just we've been injured, but we have to keep fighting and we have to lean on our brothers to the left and to the right to help pick us up and move us forward. And part of, uh, part of what we've forgotten, uh, what we've forgotten uh, here in this age is that war-like principle. And it's really important for what it means to be a man of God. Because right there at the beginning, original sin, which is Adam's sin, not Adam and Eve's sin, the failure at the garden, it was our fault. 
all Adam was told to do. He had two, he had two commands uh, from the Lord. Pray and work, same word in Hebrew. But the second one was to protect everything in the garden. I'm sure as they're walking out of, uh, out of, out of Eden, Eve looks at him and says, you had one task. <laughs> one thing. Protect the freaking garden. But he didn't. What did he do? He did nothing. This is what Genesis says. We know he did nothing because the enemy comes in. We translate it as snake, but the Hebrew word is nahash. So that's um, everywhere else in scripture. It's translated as leviathan or dragon. Right? As, I, as I'm doing um, a baptism ride, my little Ferverino, the homily there, I look at the lady and say, you know, if you're in your garden and there's a snake talking at you, it's weird, but you either walk away or you take the shovel and you lop its head off, okay? You know, move on with life. However, if there is a garden, if there, if there is a, a dragon in the garden, that's a whole different issue. That's a whole different image that we have to, uh, to uh, go with. And so we see Adam there, and we knew he do not, did nothing because it says that she took the fruit and then handed it to her husband. He was standing there dead silent, doing nothing next to the woman. We're going to claim internal form for this whole event because we don't want you to die today. That will not be passed on. Adam, Adam was a coward. He refused to get into the fight. For many men, for Lent, don't be an Adam. Tell that to the teenage boys all the time. Don't be an Adam. Engage. Get into the fight. Get into the fight. Why do we do what we do when we do it? We always have to have those, ex- uh, those external practices that help us. It's part of the... Um, so a lot of you don't know my, my primary degree is in individual group psychotherapy. And so the way that a, a guy is built, obviously, is different than a woman. Okay, but even when it comes to our mental structures and how we view the world, you know, uh, those chivalry laws that happened in the Middle Ages uh, was, were actually aimed uh, at a rebuilding what a Christian man was supposed to be. Because for a man, uh, for a man to, to have something of importance, he always attaches an action to it. If you want to know what's important, ask him how he spends his time. What does he do on Saturday mornings? Who is he spending that, uh, that time with? Um, and so the chivalry laws were made so that we could rework after years and centuries of pillaging and the raping of women to treat them with the knowledge and the honor that, was that, um, that they are due. But the Lent practices are the same way. Lent is either boot camp for men or it's that first campaign. It's the discipline of ourselves so that we can engage into the battle. Not just for ourselves, but most of all for our families. For our wives, for our children, for our grandchildren. If not uh, you, who? If not now, when? We live in a world that's, that's ripe with relativism and all the other isms. And they can't see our Lord. But someone has to stand up and look at them and fight. First in prayer, getting on those knees, fighting 
uh, for, for our children. At inconvenient times, at inconvenient places, someone has to pick up those weapons of war. That first weapon of, of the rosary. In the ancient world, um, uh, when we talk of Ark, uh, we think of the Ark of the Covenant, there were a dime a dozen among the nations. It always went out first in battle. But the difference was that for Israel, um, the one who was leading the battle was never sitting on the Ark. We talk about the mercy seat for the Ark. It was literally a seat. Well, we were missing, uh, Israel was missing someone. That seat was very much for the Queen Mother. The Queen Mother. And who is our Queen Mother but Our Lady? It's why she's always known as, um, as uh, the mistress um, and the lady of the household of God. It's also known in her, liter- uh, her litany as the terror of demons. When you, when you hear and you read uh, what all the exorcists say around the world, they say, oh, we always know when the fight's over, when Our Lady shows up. You know, all this screaming happens as she's back. You know, game over when she shows up. And so... Our posture uh, towards Lent is not only to engage into the practices that the church offers for us, okay, but it's, it's not only to engage but, uh, in the practice, but to engage why we're doing what we're doing when we're doing it. See, one of the big differences uh, between uh, Judaism and uh, Christianity and Catholicism is about ethic and ethos. The ethic is what we do. And so the Jews already had that down. The commandment said, you shall not do this. So you didn't do it. As long as you didn't do that, you were good to go. All right? But our Lord came and said, that is not enough. He went on to say, he went on to say, um, it's not that you cannot commit adultery if, uh, with that woman, but if you even look at her lustfully, you've committed that same sin. Because our Lord came and he takes, that, uh, he takes the gospel and digs deeper into us because our Lord is not just about trying to take care of bad um, bad practices. He's looking for that inner transformation to heal it from the root up, the ethos, why we do what we do. And the Lenten practices that the church gives is meant to transform that, to, to, to need it, to push it, to bring it back into direction, which is why fasting is so important because, you know, we love our food. Man, those donuts were good this morning. <laughs> So um, that fasting, so that our senses become f- uh, fully alive and we're more spiritually in tune because you're just not a body. You're a body, mind, spirit. If one hurts, so do the other two. If you suppress one, there's a reason for it. We don't, we don't fast because, hey, that's a great thing the church told us to do. We do it for a purpose. We withhold something that's important f- uh, for us so that we can focus for a deeper understanding what is the greater good that stands before us. Gentlemen, I give you this uh, history and this short kind of exhortation here as we start in, uh, into the day uh, for, for this reason. Our families, our families are in the middle of a war and they need someone to get up and to show them how to fight. They need someone to Stand up and, unlike the garden, lead the way. We don't have to have all the answers. What's also interesting is that in Ephesians 6, where St. Paul talks about our spiritual battle, he doesn't say that we have to engage the enemy. It says so that we would know the schemes of the evil one. What's his plan? What are the lies he's trying to tell us and our family? What traps are set before us?
that we're there as, as Habakkuk is, you know, to give our complaint before the Lord to see what he would say and to look ahead and to tell our family, nope, go to the left, go to the right. This practice, not so good. My encouragement for you is as we enter into these, these starting days of Lent, you know, it's Ash Wednesday through, Ho- uh, through Holy Saturday. I'm losing it. Ash Wednesday through the first Saturday in Lent. There's, that there's a prayer over the people. Once we hit tomorrow, there isn't. Why? Well, because Ash Wednesday up to that first uh, that Saturday during, uh, during Lent, it's to push us towards to prepare us for the battle that comes, uh, that comes before us. I would encourage you... Um, uh, to, uh, to encourage your family to enter into that battle for holiness, for salvation. But also to remember this. Also remember this. In Exodus 15, um, in that great uh, song uh, that Miriam sings um, after, after the Lord defeats uh, Pharaoh, part of the song goes on to say uh, that the Lord is a mighty warrior and Lord is his name. In Deuteronomy it says, be strong and courageous because I go before you. I go before you not only to prepare the way, but to conquer your enemies. Trust in me. I had mentioned those Sundays. Um, It was very important for Augustine that he reminded everybody um, that those Sundays were not fasting days for the reason that at that time they were dealing with this this heresy of this man named Pelagius, what we uh, later would call Pelagianism, which, um, oh, to oversimplify it, let's just say it's the way you white-knuckle through Christianity. Can't do that. Can't do that. Don't white-knuckle. Look at everybody around you. They're here to accompany you through Lent. They're your brother-in-arms. They're who who the Lord has placed in your life today to encourage you, but also to beat the tar out of you if, if you step out of line. That's the great thing about guys fighting. We just take each other behind the woodshed about 10 minutes. We're good to go. So I'm not saying that it's completely different with women. Long time. But do that. Embrace the Lent. And I would encourage you as Father Whitestone and, and uh, our fathers continue to lead us through this, this day. Listen closely because they're going to build upon that, tell you how to win the war. Most of all, engage. Engage. And show your kids how to fight. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.